Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You are listening to Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son and brother Andy is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in top of mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. So Caroline, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Um, I love this weather that is cool in the mornings and moderately warm in the afternoon, and I'm getting a lot of gardening done. Yeah, it's a throwback summer from like the 90s where it was just chill and mellow. 80-ish, 70, high 70s, just beautiful. It is very beautiful. I've, you know, sometimes summer in the Northwest is rain, 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 rain. Mm -hmm. And you never get to really enjoy your garden because it never can stand up properly. (laughs) It's drowning. Yeah. (laughs) Well, today's episode is entitled The Least Favorite Child. And so let us begin telling this sad story. It's also got some hope in there. And, uh, but, you know, it's a family murder. On February 9th, 2014, Brad and Andra Sachs were murdered in their home while they slept. And their son, Ashton Sachs, fired 15 bullets into his mother and father and critically injured his eight-year-old brother. And by critically injured Caroline, he is in fact paralyzed for life this little child. Anyway, this kind of attempted family annihilation is very rare. And so it's one of the things that attracted us to this story, I think, that it's just so unusual. It begs a lot of question about nurture versus nature. And um, as usual, we need to go back and figure out who this family was to try to understand it. How did they live life as a family? And can we even begin to understand what I think is impossible to understand? So the Sachs lived in paradise by numerous subjective measures, including the name of the location, a gorgeous stretch of California beach called San Juan Capistrano. And that's so romantic, San Juan Capistrano. There are (laughs) mansions ensconced in the cliffs. So really breathtaking. Uh, To me, that already points to wealth and a sort of vibrato. Uh, I would be too scared of earthquakes and global warming coming after me to live in in a cliff, on a cliff in uh, San Juan Capistrano. But anyway, they do. These people do. One such stunning cliffside mansion belonged to successful entrepreneurial couple Andra and Brad Sachs and their kids. Although kids, you know, they're 8, 15, 17, 19, and 21. So kids is probably a wee bit of a misnomer. Andrew was 52, Brad was 57, and their two oldest kids, 19 and 21, were already out of the nest, both attending college in Seattle, our neck of the woods. Two daughters were 15 and 17, and their youngest son was 8. 
So they've got a ways to go, but they come a long way in terms of rearing their family and, um, uh, you know, building the next generation. This entire family would lie in ruins, of course, because of one of those kids, Ashton Sachs. So let's talk about the power behind the family first, and her name is Andra. And when Andra was a kid around 15 years old, her father bought a new house and was trying to sell the former house. And during the months of two house ownerships, there were there was barely enough money for the family to eat. And Andra swore to herself and to her friends right then and right there that she would never be without money again in her life. So she became she began to pursue security and safety through money. This this moment probably sparked the origin story of Andra Sachs, who grew to almost six foot tall, uh, which intimidated many that she did business with, and thick blonde hair and a naturally com- commanding nature. She was a she was a beautiful woman and a very large woman in terms of tall and just gorgeous. So to me, that's also a form of you know command over everything. Some people said she was like Xena, warrior princess. And part of me is thinking, okay, I guess that's a compliment. But I want to know, why do successful women always get princess in their names? You know, why? I I don't like that. The warrior. (laughs) Yeah, just stick to the warrior. Absolutely. Well, I don't know a mother who isn't a warrior. Thank you. Yeah, we're not sweet about it. (laughs) No, no. Andra was known as very intuitive, and some said ruthless to a fault. She wound up the commander and owner of a real estate empire that was worth $80 million at the time of her death. Wow. So that's 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 beyond just real wealth. That's yeah, that's not like eight million. That's eighty million. In nineteen ninety-four. In nineteen ninety-four. So that's a lot of money in 94. Wow. That's probably getting there, you know, around 200 million. Well, These and I do stack- want to say something about the ruthless. I First of all, I don't think we've ever read any of our stories where there's an entrepreneur who is not described as ruthless. So it's clearly a prerequisite. So I don't really put much stock in it anymore. And also, she's a woman. So unfortunately, in this, you know, society that we are in, I'm always going to take what you say about women with a grain of what would it be like if it was a man. So I'm going to change it in my mind. And so if it's something like you're too effective, <laughs> you know, like, right? then I'm going to be okay with it if it's a woman. Because I just think that men get to be assertive and women get to be too much and too bossy. You're just too aggressive. Yeah. Which I, I right. don't think is true. I think we're just too clever. <laughs> That's probably the problem. I think any, okay, first of all, I'm a wimp. Uh, nobody's ever going to say I'm ruthless that I know of. And um, yet I've had to make hard decisions in my business life. I was, you know, I was making very difficult decisions all the time. Somebody was going to get helped and somebody was going to get hurt because I did hiring. So, you know, all the want that jobs most all but one are going to lose and right. so so but a man is never uh, called well you're ruthless to do that but a woman if she's able to make a hard decision like that or difficult uh conflicting kind of decision uh she's going to be ruthless so i'm with you 100 percent 
100%. In 1994, she started her own company selling semiconductors, according to a real to a real estate friend, not a real estate friend, but a real estate friend. <laughs> Andra strategically called her company Minority Electronics because she was Jewish and a woman. And this move got her all, all of the, the uh, government contracts, Caroline. See, clever. That's a level yeah. of clever that I think we can all get jealous of. <laughs> uh and I said it, this was in 1994, but actually I think it was probably 20 years before that. But anyway, at early in her life, she made this keen decision that got her to where she needed to be. Andrew was married to a laid back surfer, a drummer named Bradley Sachs, whom she met at a computer trade show. And Brad became her business partner and they ran all sorts of startups together, restaurants, you name it, businesses, and they did well. And in a major coup in uh, 1998, they acquired Flashcom, an internet DSL service, and obtained $15 million in venture capital for it. So I guess the date of 1994 is right, that she started her business then, and um, she made her fortune very yeah, quickly. This, this sounds like a lot of money for those time frames. Like, it yeah. sounds like a lot of money for now, but... Yes. Take it back to the 90s. Like, that's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm uh, definitely in the middle of the middle class. And uh, so it's incomprehensible to me that I would ever sell something for even a half million dollars or maybe a million dollars in today's right. money. So she uh, acquired this business and then uh, got this venture capital and the family lived in a nice home in uh, Pacific Palisades, but they moved to a bigger waterfront home when that happened in Huntington Beach. So venture capital, I guess, for people who are entrepreneurial, when they get a boatload of venture capital, I suppose they give themselves a great big raise as a CEO and they can now afford a bigger house. So they were doing very well in Huntington Beach and the sky was the limit. But sadly and tragically, really, it was there at that house in Huntington Beach on April 28, 1999, that the family first began to fracture. On that day, Brad was out of town on business. Andrew went to work. The, that left the two youngest in the care of their 28-year-old nanny. And about 10 a.m., the nanny, who Andra only knew as Lorena, who, which I think is very strange yeah. that you would leave your kids with someone whose first name was the only name you knew, the first name. But anyway, Lorena was cooking in the kitchen when she saw two-year-old Alexis outside on the deck of the spa. She grabbed 16-month-old Sabrina from her high chair and went out to get the older sister from away from the deck, you know, get off that deck. But at the deck, Lorena told investigators that Alexis began fussing and kicking and wiggling and knocked Sabrina, whom the nanny had set on the deck, into the spa. So now we have a 16-month-old in a spa. Like a hot uh, tub spa? Like yeah. A, like a, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Going to sink now. Oh, a panic-stricken Lorena ran to get her husband. What? Who was upstairs in the home. So... Panic will do weird things to people. It's anyway, true. she didn't she didn't jump in the spa like I would envision. But anyway, she went to get her husband. He attempted what investigators called a feeble attempt at CPR, 
And then Lorena finally called Andra at work. So, okay, you know, I just have to, I just have to unpack this. This baby is sunken to the bottom of the spa. Lorena goes upstairs to get her husband. I guess he comes down immediately, probably, but I don't know. And he gets the baby from the bottom of the spa. And then he does some, you know, I don't know, patting her on the chest or something. I don't know mm. what he did, but it wasn't enough. Andra was in hysterics when Lorena called her. And so she just said, call 911. But the emergency response was delayed because the dispatcher could not understand Lorena, who spoke only Spanish. Okay, now oh that's on God. the 911 people. Anyway, paramedics tried to revive the child, but little Sabrina was pronounced dead at Huntington Beach Hospital. Police considered the death an accident. And the coroner agreed. Uh, Caroline, all I can say about this is I just want to go back and fix it every time I, I every think time. about yeah. it. I, this is the most tragic story that we have to read. I know we've read it a few times now, too. It's just I yeah. hate it every time. Every time we go through this, well, yeah. you can put yourself right there. And like you, you know, you're kind of like, I think everybody would do this. And Andra, probably more than anyone. But you just walk through how it could have gone differently and how easily, you know, it feels like get her out of the spa. Like she falls in, get her right out. Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> just, I'll never understand that. And it, it, it's, but I don't want to judge right. Lorena we because there. she did the thing that she thought in her panic was the best thing to do. And, um, this tragedy obviously devastated the family. Now my, the kind of devastation that I'm, thought thinking about is everybody's going to grieve in their own way and they're going to pull away from one another and they're going to blame one another and they're going to blame themselves i mean just that thick thick layer of horror i'm telling you right now just having gone through the story again i'm feeling a lot of weight in my own tummy so to be a part of the family that experienced that i just i don't know how you would survive no no within six months brad filed for divorce the marriage further crumbled. You know, that's not unusual. It's we hear that all the time. Death that that uh, The death of a child oh. uh, takes your skeleton right out of your body. Yes. And you're just a heap. The marriage further crumbled against the backdrop of a stressful business dispute. In September 1999, Brad, acting at the behest of the venture capital investors, fired Andra from Flashcom. So... In other words, your board of directors can cause you to have to fire your wife. And, you know, how come they didn't just sell? Why didn't they just sell? Oh, I don't know. This is why I'm not into entrepreneurship. You know, I'm not ruthless and I can't fire my spouse. You know, so that's like an, that's like salt in the wounds. And so in February 2000, a judge issued a divorce judgment, but Caroline, within two weeks, they, they reconciled. Also pretty common, I think. That's so sweet. Sorry. But I just think, you know, you two are just love each other. I agree. In looking at Brad and Andres and what they built and what they've been through and everything, I actually really think they're a very, very great couple and a great family and and all the things. But All the things. It all does kind of look funny. That's why a marriage is between two people 
those people, not yeah. anybody else. And, and really within a two-person marriage, each person has their own point of view about what the hell is going on. So That's you've right. got right. nothing but fractures there. Anyway, <laughs> Andrew's friends believe that even though they apparently had divorced, not apparently people, they were <laughs> divorced, the couple wanted to keep the family together because their children just meant everything to them, just everything. But I mean, these are people who like to grow. Yeah. They like to grow something. So they're yes. going to grow a business. They're going to grow their bank account. They're going like to grow a family. Too. Yes. Yeah. I know it's too much to expect that Brad and Andrew are ever going to be the same given their shared losses, but there were more to come. Uh, Andra had been investing in real estate and she and Brad were famous and or infamous landlords of multi-million dollar worth of property they, they rented out, both residential and commercial. Now, some of their tenants loved them to, you know, just but just thought the world of them. And many loathed them how hard driving they were. And according to some, how hard it was to get them to invest in maintenance of those properties. Well, yeah, I mean, I've had, I've rented places where the landlord was like, yeah, I'll fix that. I promise. And, you know, here I am today still waiting on it. Yeah. Anyway, how quickly their office home property was sold and 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 they had to move out. In other words, that was the big beef is that they were, you know, uh, they were in the business of buying and selling right. for the most part and developing and, and all that. So they would be ousted, families would be ousted from their properties uh, with no notice, hardly any notice, just right. the bare like minimum weeks, legal notice. Uh, you got to get out. That's not very nice. So Andrew and Brad were acquiring many, many enemies, including tenants as well as investors, even neighbors in some cases. One of Andrew's neighbors said Andrew would let her dog do his business on her lawn and then just leave it, even as the neighbor was standing right there. Yeah. Okay, Xena warrior, that's real nervy. It's like that's what that's what Zena does. <laughs> I just think that's bad to the bone. I think it does speak to somewhat of a callous disregard or yeah. obliviousness to other yeah. people and what that what effect you're having on them. Yeah, it's a power move for sure in a neighborhood with your neighbors. Yeah. That's a power move. Like, and you know, have to we don't know me. the backstory. We don't know the story of what this, what's going on between these two people. That's true. I mean, that's true. And you know, dogs. Are, that's a very common neighborhood gripe. It really is yeah. across all of the United States. Animals pooping in the wrong yards. It's common. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's why I, when I'm walking my neighborhood with my dogs, I have my uh, poop bag out like a flag. Look, people, I am not I do that too. Not going like, to be one around. of those non-pickup people. I'm not one of those people. I do that no. too. That's funny. <laughs> I hope you see me when I bend over and break my back to get this poop off the ground. It's not always easy. Anyway, <laughs> as the years rolled on, Andrew and Brad decided to adopt a daughter in uh, 2007 from a Russian orphanage. They came home with two new children a little girl named Lana, and a younger brother named Landon. Now, remember, Andrew and Brad are legally divorced, but they're still together. And to me, to me, Caroline, this adoption is a very strong indication that they are building a future together and they still want to be a family. Yeah, 
This is very interesting in that they would go to a, make a single adoption, but they come back with a sibling, um, you know, brother and sister. Yeah. I just think these are great people. I mean, honestly, their life is so full and rich of really interesting things. I know that they've got stories of people who hate them, but who doesn't? But I mean, I just think that even though it's really tragic and there's a lot of loss, a lot of anger, a lot of conflict, they have such a beautiful sort of thing that they've made together. When they are connected, they do build beautiful things. They do. And I think that when you meet a couple of people who love each other, obviously, and they love building their family and developing that, and they are both engaged in their sort of life purpose. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of energy there to draw in a lot of people. And I suppose that's part of why they were able to get investor money so easily. So Andrew acquired the San Juan Capistrano mansion in March 2009 for a bargain price of $2.45 million. It was a bank repo that had been listed seven months earlier at $3.6 million. Well, that's because of, you know, everybody went underwater in 2009. Yeah, but only the rich had a good only time. Only the that. rich can pick up uh, the big properties, you know, know. Uh, when that happens. Son Ashton was in a funk, meanwhile, after the breakup of his girlfriend. So we're moving to San Juan Capistrano to a mansion in the cliffs and, and uh, you know, no more pooping in that neighbor's yard. We got somebody <laughs> to help us with the poop problem. I mean, I don't, it was just like, it was, it was just a, a huge... Uh, sign to the world that we have arrived. And meanwhile, son Ashton uh, was in a funk because he's used to being rich. That's probably part of the problem. But anyway, after the breakup of his girlfriend, Sandra's solution, excuse me, Andra's solution for Ashton's sadness was to quote, give him a clean slate. You know, that, that is a bromide that what does that actually mean? It's not like you could be reborn. I guess some people would argue that you can be if you're baptized in a certain way. I don't know. But anyway, he's going to get a clean slate, says his mom, by moving him to Seattle in 2013, where he would be able to attend North Seattle Community College and be near his brother, Miles, who was at the Washington State University in Pullman. You know, I want to kind of talk to the listeners here about how far away North Seattle Community College is to Washington State University in Pullman. It takes hours and hours and hours to get there. So when she thought that you guys will just be in the same neighborhood, no, it is not in the hood. It's there way, mo- way. There's a mountain range between yes. the two locations yes. in addition to all the extra miles roadway there's a full-on mountain range that closes in the winter often from yeah yeah snow so but you know (laughs) so it's a little sugar-coated that you're going to have the protection and support of your brother your older brother and uh but you know to i have to come to andra's defense because at this time when she kind of probably got tired of ashton being in a funk uh, because of a girlfriend, she probably just thought, oh, my God. Anyway, uh, sent him away to college at North Seattle Community College. Uh, at this time, Brad had been diagnosed with an aggressive form of Parkinson's. So her mind was on that. His mobility was, of course, affected 
And Andrew began to seriously consider moving the entire family away from Paradise in San Juan Capistrano to a San Diego area where she even bought a one-level home in Coronado, which is about 17 minutes from San Diego. She was telling people that she wanted to take care of Brad and she wanted to make his mobility issues easier with a smaller one-level home. So, okay, you know, this woman really is a Xena warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just gave the world a major tell about what she's really all about. Underneath that fierce, aggressive, whatever you want to call it, Xena warrior, her business side, to hell with that, it's Brad. Yeah, I want to take care loves. of Brad. Yeah, she. they have this connection. They are good together. They accentuate each other in positive ways. They've created such a beautiful family. I mean, that's, I think, in her heart. Like, she's found her little um, cove, you know, her bubble, and someone in her bubble's hurting, so everything shifts. I mean, that's just a beautiful thing. So, remembering at this time that they had a 17-year-old Alexis, 15-year-old Lana, and the youngest was eight-year-old Landon. Brad and Andra, in spite of being divorced, shared a bedroom and still loved each other very deeply. And that's where we we are at. In fact, that's what the press wrote uh, when the unbelievable happened. Responding officers found the couple's youngest child, eight-year-old Landon, face down in a hallway, wounded and crippled by a bullet that had struck him in the torso. This wound to landed would paralyze him from the waist down for life. Caroline, he was eight. Eight. That's just so impossible to contemplate. This little eight-year-old's life is over, the life he knew. He will now begin a new paralyzed orphan life on that floor that night. Well, and it's his second orphaning. This is an adopted child from, yes. from a different country who's you know, origin story, we don't really know, but we know that he's separated from his birth parents. So that must be hard or traumatic in a way, you know? So, I mean, geez, Louise. Another round had been fired into the bedroom of 17-year-old Alexis, narrowly missing her. Alexis had heard the shots that killed her parents and seriously wounded her brother. She had risen from her bed when the killer shot in her direction and kept on moving through the house. Only 15-year-old Lana, who'd been sleeping in her room with two of the three families' dogs, had escaped the attacker's attention. So this is a killer, and we're talking about uh, one of Andrew's sons, um, Ashton. He is just going through the house killing everybody. He would have killed Lana. He would have killed the dogs. He would have killed everybody. He's just decided, okay, now I'm going to put on my killer suit and I'm going to kill everybody I know. I mean, just horror, 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 horror. It's horror. Eldest son, uh, Miles, 21, and Ashton, 19, had moved to Washington State to attend college. So they weren't around when this happened, according to the police and the press. Brad and Andra may not have seen or heard the intruder or the 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle that was pointed at them. I hope not, Caroline. Deputies found 57-year-old Brad and 54-year-old Andra dead in their bed 
their bodies riddled with gunshots, any number of which could have killed them. There was blood all over the bed, one of the officers testified. There were bullet casings and glass everywhere. So, you know, Caroline, I've always been somebody who has said, I want to die in my sleep, but not like this. Yeah, this is not like this. But but it does sound like everyone was really just this came out of nowhere in the middle of the night. Oh, God. Yeah. Nobody saw this coming. Uh, Andrew's head is full of, you know, I bought this house. Uh, How are we going to take care? How are we going to take care of Brad? Mm-hmm. That's her mm-hmm. everything now. How are we going to take Brad, care of Brad, and how the kid and and the kids? How how are we going to do this? And then she died, so she didn't get to do that. Alexis didn't move from her bedroom after the killer left until until she heard her brother Landon crying out. He was crawling down the hall toward her room when she found him, and he told her he can't feel his legs. Oh God, this breaks my heart. And Alexis dialed 911. Police had no clues as to who might have carried out this carnage. This was obviously not something that was imaginable in a posh neighborhood in the middle of the night. It didn't look like there was forced entry. When police contacted the brothers in Seattle, uh, the police asked them who could have done such a thing. And what they were told gave investigators quite a direction. There were, there were so many angry, hostile, litigious investors after Andra. And there were many, many tenants of her properties that loathed her and might be out for revenge or some change in the way their tenancy was being managed. Yeah, I don't like my landlord, so I'm going to go annihilate the whole family. One thing happened that I found kind of stunning. Once the news hit local papers about the killing of Andra and Brad Sachs, some of their tenants spewed some serious giddiness over their murder. They got what they deserved sort of thing. Mm. My God, Caroline. Yeah, I just don't think it's wise in any capacity to, to taunt people in, in sort of the death realm because karmically, you just you just need to watch it, I think. I think all humans experience death. So why don't you just move on? <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? and, and nobody deserves to die like nope, this. Nobody, especially like this. And so don't be giddy about it. Be like, okay, you know, maybe be indifferent. Strive for indifference, people. But to be yeah. giddy about the loss of life of another, I just don't ever, there's just nobody bad enough, I guess, in my mind to get in that business. <laughs> Yeah, well, they they did the police a favor because every one of these, you know, scoffers and, and giddiness stuff, they deserved it. All of them were investigated to the hilt. Mm-hmm. And also the investors. And there were tips coming in about organized crime as well. And uh, a fellow named Ken Bond rented space from the Sachs. Uh, the Sachs used a space adjacent to the Bond's office for some of their business's office type work. And Bond told police that Sachs were very secretive and instructed him to never, ever tell anyone where they were, what, or that they were even there. So he said that the Sachs were well known to be difficult, but he never expected them to be killed as a result of that. Along those same lines, a friend of the Sachs said that they just had to stop hanging out with them because of a definite feeling that something bad was going to happen. Okay, well, that's clairvoyant. Well, and 
I don't know. I just kind of feel like, why didn't you have that conversation with your friend? I mean, what does that mean? Something bad's going to happen. Do you think they're going to get jumped in an alleyway? Like, maybe you tell them that. (laughs) You're going to stop being friends with something because something's bad going to happen. Well, okay, newsflash. Something bad is going to happen to everybody. Right. That you don't, that's just, that's so weird. weird. It is clairvoyant, though. Yeah. But it's weird. And now that everything's happened. (laughs) Anyway. Either the sacks may have been so secretive and so cautious based on their enemies list that they were just not good company. I mean, that I could understand. But speculating uh, about what what they were thinking and I don't know. I just think that's weird. I'm going to put that under weirdness. Yeah. Uh, but then anyway, the company was called, there was a company called Plug-In Supply belonging to the sacks. They sold their product that was owned by a name uh, a man by the name of Rob Prothero, who later accused them of not paying contractors, and this business partner pulled out. So that's very complicated, but basically, plugging supply was kind of shaky, uh, and he was upset about all of that. The Sachs went on to sell inferior products on their own under that name. And now these plugs were for automobiles that were sort of a battery conversion thing. And apparently one of these products was installed in a Toyota, which caught fire while a woman was driving it. And the origin of the fire was found to be one of these plugs that the Sachs had sold. So this entire case, Caroline, was settled out of court. And I kind of, you and I, didn't we talk about this, that we yeah. knew about this case? Yes, because Toyota's catching fire was the big deal back in the day. I mean, it was a big deal. I remember hearing about it on the news. They had to do a lot of recalls. It was a serious problem for Toyota. Very yeah. serious. I didn't realize that this was sort of the origins of that, potentially. Yeah. I'm assuming they're related, but I remember those Toyota fires. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you know, I'm kind of getting it now that the Sachs may have had a reputation for not being nice, not being good in business. And, uh, or that they were nice in real life, but in business, they were not so nice, not so good. They used practices that were not considerate of other people and they were sued a lot. It's uh, disheartening at times to know what we consumers are up against, you know? I know. But that doesn't give anyone a license to kill and especially little children and to cripple them for life. And I mean, just shooting at anything that moves in a residential home in the middle of the night is just, it's just a diseased mind as far as I'm concerned. For sure. So all of so these so-called enemies had to be rounded up and their alibis had to be checked out. And of course, the phone records of various people of interest, family member, anybody close to the sacks had to be looked at. I mean, you know, there's this question of was there a conspiracy to commit murder? And, of course, Miles and Ashton were in that phone pool. And line by line, evidence technicians checked out numbers called, numbers calling, and so forth. And Ashton Sachs, the 19-year-old son in Seattle, happened to have one number that intrigued investigators. Now, I'm going to stop right here and tell these investigators, good job. And these evidence technicians, good job. Because, you know, these boys were way out of town in Seattle. And they could have just not even pulled those records. Right. Well, that's the thing. is It's not even about the records you pull. You have to analyze the records you pull. You have right. to look at them with a detailed eye in the backdrop against the other big picture information you have. 
to tie right. a picture together. It's very difficult work. It's interesting work, but it's hard. So this is actually a very, very good find. A call had been made from Ashton's phone to a transport company near the Sachs home around the time of the murder. The transport company told police that, yes, they had contacted, to, they had been contracted, rather, to bring a white Prius from San Juan Capistrano area to Seattle just after the murders. So, according to an Orange Coast Magazine article that I read about this, the Sachs murder case was covered, and when these cell phone records suggested a link between the Prius and the shootings, the police traced the car to the Seattle area home of the owner of an auto transportation company. Again, props to the investigators for, you know, they're pulling on this one little string, and it's come and unraveled. Those records showed that Ashton had called this company to have his car, a white Prius, shipped from the Calais Perfecto lot where his mother owned an office building shortly after the murders. Ashton then called a cab for the airport where he boarded an American Airlines flight to Seattle that got him to his home by 10 in the morning. And this meant that when the police called about his parents' murder and his brother's injuries, Ashton was in Seattle. All of these maneuvers giving himself an alibi. That's crazy. That's crazy, like, calculated. You know, it's stunning, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The company's owner told law enforcement he was holding the Prius at his residence in Seattle until Ashton could pick it up. So police got on a plane. They went to Seattle to examine that car. And when they got there, they opened the trunk. And it was at that moment that Ashton's alibi, that he'd been in Seattle at the time of the murders, completely fell apart because inside the vehicle trunk, police found the Ruger. Ballistic tests confirmed that this was the murder weapon. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine if they hadn't hadn't gotten to it in time? If if Ashton had gotten to it first, like if how much more difficult it would have made things. Anyway, doesn't matter. Absolutely. I mean, these investigators must have been euphoric. I mean, or you know, your your heart's going to flutter That's when you think that this detail that you're tracking down after all those other investigations that ran into a dead end. Now, during this period of time leading up to Ashton becoming the apparent killer, what was Ashton doing? What had he been doing? Ashton had been 24-7. Now, what has he been doing since his parents died and his brother was paralyzed? Ashton had been 24-7 by his little brother's bedside, tending to his now paralyzed brother's every need. Ashton cried and cried inconsolably as he stood on the dais at his parents' funeral. He wept and declared that his parents were his heroes. His mother was his hero in particular. His upbringing was perfect and his parents were perfect and he really meant those things Caroline and you can go out onto YouTube and watch him produce these tears and produce that eulogy to his perfect life with his perfect family and it is unbelievable to me it's a chilling it's a chilling thing to watch once you recognize everything that happened and it's pieced together by the investigators and you know It's chilling to me the way he behaved afterwards. I agree. And it's fascinating to me that uh, 
Yeah, as as brutal a killing and destruction this was, Ashton was the chief family eulogizer at his parents' funeral. And in watching those videos, I believe Ashton meant those things, he said. I'm watching it and I'm thinking, boy, I think they've got the wrong guy. You know, oh, it's just crazy. I swear. Right? Like, cause it's, cause then you don't know what to believe about this person. Like, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it made me think out. there, when I was watching that video, I thought, oh my God, there is such a tormenting sort of fracture, a dichotomy in this person. Yeah. He meant these things. I, this is me thinking yeah. this, and this is how I felt when I watched him. He meant these things. And at the moment at their funeral up there in front of the crowd, he believed every one of them. Yeah. He believed every one of them. He was so just he's, he's delusional. Well, that's the thing, because you have to then compartmentalize. I mean, this is what I'm talking about when people commit crimes, but then they behave in ways that make it impossible for them to have been the one to commit the crime. There is a very conscious part of you going through this lie and it's a lie. And so that's maybe where I struggle the most with it. I'm, I'm not, I don't do good with inauthentic lying. I just don't. To know that somebody can compartmentalize that. That's I it. Mean, because when, when are you turning that on and off? You know, <laughs> like how far I don't even go? know that he knows. I mean, were, were there any clues that Ashton might murder his family? According to Andrew's sister, Andra was looking into making some changes in her financial arrangements. The exact nature of all those changes is is only somewhat obvious. For example, a will that Andra signed in May 2007 left most of her personal effects to her children with distributions to be made through a trust until they reached the age of 30. Another trust was set up in 2010 to benefit the children, and it appears to cover the distribution of real estate assets. This might point to a motive of financial gain for Ashton. More importantly, there were text messages pointing to rising tensions between him and his mother. On October 6th of the previous year, she told him, we have deposited money into your account, Ashton, but please spend it slowly. Um, I, you know, okay. So she's giving him a hint and I just want to go back in time and tell her, listen, Andra, hints don't work with people yeah. like this. You have to give them a deadline, a specific task, mm -hmm. and then the reward or the consequences yes. that is to be meted out. But she, I can't do that. Anyway, on November 28th, she asked him to stop playing video games so damn much. Ashton responded by referring to Miles as, well, you know, you Miles is your little pet and you all you like to do is just complain about me. And she he was pissed because she wanted him to go get a part-time job. Yeah. In other words, oh. can you get out into the real world and stop playing video games? I just feel like a lot of us, you don't have to be rich to relate to these plights of parenting. I, I but But I think rich having the money adds a layer that many of us don't understand and, and would become very judgmental about. So I don't want to be judgmental. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's always the kid that's sort of like not as grateful as the other kids for what uh -huh. they're receiving. <laughs> yeah. And we're finding out that, you know, sometimes that, I don't know. We don't All know. I'm saying is just two days before the murder, Andra and Ashton had the most heated exchange via text messages. Okay, part of me is thinking, could you put down the texts and can you get in your car and talk face to face or yeah. at least by phone? 
After Andra complained that Ashton had gotten his father, had forgotten his father's 57th birthday the previous day. So here's this text. Andra's sending, Ashton, you forgot your father's 57th birthday yesterday, and you didn't even bother to call him. And he texted her back, I forgot his birthday just as much as he forgot he has a son. Okay, what? Brad has got Parkinson's disease. He's got a... You know, people expect to be remembered on their birthday, not to remember to tell people, now remember, it's my birthday. I know. (laughs) Don't forget to tell me happy birthday. (laughs) Oh, my God in heaven. Andrew's shock came back at him in written form. Wow. No, he did not. He loves you very much. I would say... Mom, I agree with you. The, the phones should have been put down long ago. She should have either flown him home or flown out there or called him on the na- an actual telephone because, I mean, this is very common, I think, in families where you've got this sense of a child feeling unloved or maybe like the, you know, the blacks, what do they call the black sheep of the family, the, mm-hmm. the muck up, the one who's constantly not doing as well as their siblings. It's so common, I think, in dynamics of families. But you yeah. know, it's not going to go anywhere if you're just like, wow, that's not true. <laughs> you know? Oh, I know. Out. And I'm wondering if this Ashton character is not a vulnerable narcissist. And we have talked about that before yes. where you've got a, you know, uh, a, a thought process defect where yes. you always see yourself as the victim. Yeah. I mean, the community was in shock that there was a killer on the loose. But when Ashton Sachs was arrested in the murder for the murder of his parents and the attempted murder of his brother Landon, uh, shock turned to disbelief. How could this be possible? How can this be possible? And when you have kids on your own and you found out, excuse me, when you have kids of your own and you find out that a prominent couple in your community has been slaughtered by one of their kids. It makes you kind of wonder, uh, what? That is a thing that can happen? (laughs) What? It's a worldview shaker. (laughs) It is. Thank you. That's a great way to put it. I love that. I'm going to steal that. I like that. That's a worldview shaker right there. The case against the Ashton Sachs was put together using his own words and damning physical evidence. Inside the white Toyota Prius that Ashton's mother recently had bought for him. Sorry, I'm just so prejudiced against this boy now. Police found the Ruger, the semi-automatic rifle. A ballistics expert, again, determined that the bullets uh, removed from the uh, the Sachs mansion in in San Juan Capistrano had been fired from that weapon. So Ashton was taken to the police interrogation room for a discussion about what he knew and what his story was. And that interrogation was recorded, and you can see it on YouTube. Ashton was chatty, and he answered questions about his parents, his activities, and so forth. And then, as you can see in the video, uh, Oxygen also did a show on this and has some of that video in it. Ashton clammed right up when investigators started challenging him. And it's really chilling, chilling to think about this chitty, chitty, bang, bang, you know, constantly going on and on, late teens, college student from a wealthy family, having an entirely different persona. And then when he's confronted with evidence and truth and things like that, 
Um, and remember, Ashton had given this heart-wrenching eulogy of his parents' funeral at the bedside vigil he's constantly holding for his brother. Uh, but detectives started pointing out some inconsistencies in his story. And eventually they asked him what he'd say if they told him that they had a video of him at John Wayne Airport on the day of the murder. And he was unresponsive. Now, unresponsive. I was just thinking, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean that his mind is going 90 miles overdrive <laughs> up a hill fast and he's cornered. Yeah. He undoubtedly um, knew he was cornered. So the fear must have been heating up in every vein of his body. Mm. Uh, you know, all that time in front of video games was nothing compared to this reality. Mm -hmm. He just has, was not prepared for people who would have things like evidence. Yeah. Uh, no account deposit to erase this mess. No, <laughs> I mean, no. Man. Ultimately, he confessed. He confessed over two sessions. I mean, it took a long time. In one interrogation, you can see a very teenager-looking kid, Ashton, telling Orange County Sheriff's Detective shortly after his arrest that it, he really didn't have a reason. Uh, all he could come up with, Caroline, was, I don't know, just a lot of problems. I mean, literally a sentence fragment for why he did what he did, which me, I always am trying to figure out what the hell's going on here. Yeah. I think that's highly representative, this fragmented sentence, just a lot of problems being representative of the fragmented mind of this killer. I really yeah, do. It's, it's all very just unsettling for me. I mean, just it's yeah. all very unsettling. He said his life was, quote unquote, fucked up. He had stopped going to classes at the community college he was enrolled in which was not far from where we're recording right now, Caroline, in North mm -hmm. Seattle. He was spending his time smoking pot and playing video games. He said he didn't trust his parents, who made him feel like crap by fl favoring his siblings. Okay, I don't believe that. No, I don't either. I believe that's what he thought. I do believe that that was his, his worldview, right? I mean, that he, all of yes. his siblings are... And, you know, honestly, that's rarely common among siblings, especially, yeah, any more than one child, you're going to start having slight underpinnings of competition in, in that way where you feel like, oh, they're doing better than me. The parents must love them. It's just the way that it works. It's just the way the brain works and family dynamics work. But I don't believe it's true because it's every relationship is different. Every child is different. Everybody's into different things. You know, but I believe I, that he thought this. As a child... You're not going to believe this, Caroline, but as a child, I was rambunctious and I had a loud mouth. No. <laughs> and my brother was scientific and he never said a word and had his own room and everything was neat. Yeah. And I used to think, well, they love him more. They love him more. And what that did to me is it made me want to be like my brother. Yeah. So in everyone's mind, there's a connection with okay, so what does that mean for you? Right. And for some reason, this this boy, Ashton, decided that means I'm not loved, which I have had that feeling before. But instead of saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be more like them. Right. Or I want to, you know, or I see what she's talking about. Instead of that, he's going, well, my role in life is to be the victim of this family. Yes. 
Because otherwise, why wouldn't you come up with something new? I mean, video games and smoking pot, although very common pastimes here in the Northwest, can be very indicative of depression, seasonal or not, you know, right? And so I'm with you because I, right, I have two older siblings and they were good at two totally different diverging things. And I felt like, oh man, I got like nothing. Like I always felt, what do they call that? Feckless. And so I, but eventually I just accepted it as like, well, whatever. I mean, I'm still having a good time and they still love me. Like I, I was able to get that message. I know a lot of siblings don't get the last part, but because I did, it didn't matter to me as much, right? right? That, you know, some people have feck and some people are feckless and feck, (laughs) feck, feck just means, you know, you have a direction in life and you're pursuing all things and the, the direction that you have in your life becomes your filter. And then there are people who let their values be their filter and they're willing to, uh, you know, sort of float down the river until they find something that interests them and they get out of their boat and they go in that direction. Yes. I mean, you know, absolutely. I think that it is a malfunction of the brain yeah. to think the way that Ashton was thinking. But I want to go back to what he said about, he said he didn't trust his parents. Uh, they made him feel like crap. I think he used that word trust, but what he really is going on is that he didn't like his own reflection Mm -hmm. that his parents were constantly drawing his attention to. Yes. They gave him a sweet start in life. Ashton, here's the ball. Now run with it. Yeah. And he did not like them that they gave him a ball and they wanted him to run. Yeah. What the? So rude. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted a Frisbee and I want to sit right here. They didn't, they, and you know, he probably came by a little bit of that, honestly, because remember Brad was kind of a, of a, a free spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, he claimed to police that his plan had been to shoot the couple and then kill himself. Oh God. How many times have we heard that from a a family annihilator or a killer? Just stop saying it out loud. Yes, stop it. You're alive here, so that's a lie. Anyway, he told detectives that he couldn't explain why he wounded Landon and shot Alexis. Because you chose to. Anyway, in the taped interrogation, Ashton Sachs told police he wasn't normal. Okay, that I believe. And that he just walked up and started shooting. And he said, you know, I don't know why I ruined my life. I just wanted to die. Okay, so there it is. It's all about me. Well, yeah. And there's some serious, like, I think that instead of money and locations and college education, I think this kid should have been given some mental health resources and and group sort of activities in that way where he could find his tribe of people that made him feel of value, right? I mean, that makes me sad to hear that a little bit because ultimately he's still a child. I know he's 19, but he's clearly sheltered in his upbringing because he didn't have to do a lot of the other things that a lot of other 19-year-olds at that time would have had done at that time. I mean, I know like both my brothers picked strawberries a couple summers. Like that's hard work. Like, I mean, you just, there's a lot of different upbringings. And I think that more middle-class upbringing is you do have a job by the time you're 15, 16. Right. Or start to get a sense of what your parents maybe have done for you so that you didn't have to do it for yourself and you or start just get to out in the real world get out in the world and we're gonna we're gonna suggest that you go get a job that um is gonna show you a, a different view of life right and i am trying to put this familiar side 
it's, it was an attempted familicide together as a chain of events. So his little sister dies. Yeah. Everybody in the family is dealing with it individually with no professional help. Mm -hmm. He feels isolated and banished into Seattle with no emotional support. He doesn't want to let go of video games that he's addicted, probably. Yeah. He never has the moment of clarity that this is his life and that he must live it responsibly to himself and for himself, which is where we always, you know, that's the destination of right. youth is that you wake up at one day and you realize this is my life. It's me. <laughs> and he murders and destroys his family. And he says he's going to kill himself. And I guess in a way, Caroline, he did. Yeah. So, you know, there was the unveiling to the community about this murder and everybody was shocked. And and he, you know, didn't go to trial that uh, because he uh, pled guilty um, and he... He, he was temporarily housed in the Orange County Central Men's Jail awaiting trial, probably, you know, on two counts of murder, two for attempted murder relating to his siblings. Uh, the district attorney's office decided that if it did go to trial, they were going to go uh, pursue the death penalty. Uh, so he'd be in San Quentin, you know, waiting along with millions of other, not millions, hundreds of other people on death row there. Anyway, in 2017, Ashton Sachs did plead guilty. He was sentenced to four consecutive life terms plus 100 years for additional penalties with no probabilities, possibilities of parole. He was offered an opportunity to make a statement, but he refused. He was quietly taken away to his life behind bars. And, you know, so he's serving life behind bars, no parole. The Sachs were Jewish, and Ashton Sachs sat at his sentencing wearing a white yarmulke, the Jewish religious skullcap. Now, a white yarmulke uh, is the traditional for the holiday of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which occurs two days prior, which what had occurred two days prior to the hearing, uh, the day when Jews are asked to uh, for forgiveness for their sins. They ask God, please forgive me for my sins. In court, Sachs asked for nothing but forgiveness from his family members, not mercy. Not He didn't ask for forgiveness from his family. He didn't ask for mercy. But I say, yes, he did. He wore that white yarmulke. Anyway. Well, he's trying. He's still so young. I would still assert that he's still very young. 19 is a very young person. And, and his life experience up to that point, you're right, was full of either trauma or what he would perceive as neglect. Yes. And Ashton's aunt spoke for the family about the impact of his killing. You had a choice, Ashton. You apparently had been thinking about this, that you were going to go do this for a long time. And then you had 18 hours to run that car around. You were 19 and an adult, not 10, not 11, not 12. And you were stuck, uh, still stuck under their authority that was meant as a slam to him. Like, what were you doing spending all your parents' money anyway? Right. You could have walked away from that family and made it on your own. And I've been told by my friends and my family that in order to move forward, I need to forgive you. Well, here's my choice, Ashton. At this time, I can't forgive you for what you did. Maybe someday I will. Oh, but not today. I like this aunt. This aunt, that's the most truest kind of way you can speak. She's not wrong at all. No, uh, here I, I am saying so. he's only 19. But, you know, I don't know him. 
I just am knowing what is on the paper here. Yeah, I think the fact that he's 19 is what attracted us to this case, yeah. really. The, 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 the cascade of events that led to this 19-year-old doing this and choosing this is so unusual uh, that it's intriguing. In an article I read in 2018 about Miles, he now not only serves as patriarch to his youngest brother and sisters who are in their late teens now, he also runs the family management business, property management business. And he's figured out how to combine business with family, having the kids, as he calls them, study at the office after school. Miles said it all started with a promise. A few years ago, his mom, Andra, asked her eldest son to commit to two things. First and foremost, she wanted Miles to take care of his siblings if anything ever happened to her. Second, she wanted him to run the property management company and keep it in the family as her legacy. And you're the only one I can trust to take over, Miles Sachs said she told him. The article reads, were her requests reasonable after the unimaginable had happened? He squints for a moment and is taken aback. And he said, so this is the this is the interviewer saying, do you think now that that's kind of unreasonable that you would do that based right. on what happened? I mean, and he said, look, I had a promise to keep and to do what is right. And I don't even think about it. I just do it. Okay, he's my favorite child. I know. He's my well, favorite. this is how you can tell it really was a good family full of love. I mean, you just you hit all the markers of compassion, honor, duty. They were there. They were yeah. there to be absorbed. Totally. Yes, they were there. Miles Sachs acknowledges his mother wore the pants in the family. Those are his words. With more than a touch of pride in his voice, the son describes his mother as a strong, powerful, intelligent decision maker. I don't doubt that. Besides, yeah. dad had other talents. He could build practically anything. Miles says about his dad, he had a pretty cool technical mind. Aww. I know. It's an extraordinary statement about any such tragedy, but with both parents dead, it's also inspiring for its simple truth. A typical morning in the Sachs household sees Miles hustling, who he calls the kids, off to school while their two basset hounds, Floyd and Ruthie, oh my God, I love you. <laughs> They they just watch them get ready, and then Miles is off to oversee the family property management business. Rather than the multi-million dollar fortune reported in the media, Miles describes the family's company today as a small mix of commercial and residential properties, mostly in Southern California. He reports that the business is merely at the sustainable level. He puts in long hours working to grow the company and checking the finances himself as his mom taught him to do. And when he gets home, it's family time. Evenings are devoted to homework, the occasional Simpsons or Shark Tank, teaching the siblings such things as operating their new 3D printer. The best part of my day, Miles says, smiling, is being with the kids. My, so he's like his mom, isn't he? Yeah. Miles figures he'll be in his early 30s by the time he's finished parenting. And then he'll apply for his dream job. He wants to work for Amazon or Google. He admits, I'll be old, but I'll be experienced in marketing, management, and product design. But what about his promise to mom about running the family business? And Miles laughs. He says, by then, I'm going to let that next generation deal with it. <laughs> I love I that love answer. It. Yeah. 
So I, I like it that we can leave it right here, Caroline. It's a horror story with an uplifting message about moving forward and having a having a dream. And uh uh you know, just thank you listeners for tuning in to this rugged case, but also a heartwarming case. Uh, please drop us a five-star rating, if you will, and write a review and tell your friends. The family, uh, this family po- uh, podcast uh, appreciates you. And uh, today's episode was researched, written, and narrated by Bridget and Caroline, produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject. Episodes are aired every other week. If you like us, as I said, please subscribe. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about it in person or by social media. That's how the word gets out. All these actions help new listeners find us, and we do love our listeners. Thank you so much. Uh, We appreciate you. And don't forget to live and let live. Well, that's it, Caroline. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.